All right. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, a very special guest. He comes to us from the UK. His name is John Higgs, and he's just published an excellent book, which I finished this morning. The title of the book is William Blake vs. the World, published May 2021. And this is not the author's first book. Uh, he also wrote back in the 20, 2006, published I Have America Surrounded, a biography of Timothy Leary, which I consider to be the best biography of Timothy Leary. I've read that and quoted that. He's also written The KLF, Chaos, Magic, Music, Money, published 2012. Stranger Than We Can Imagine, Making Sense of the 20th Century, published 2015. Watling Street Travels Through Britain and Its Ever-Present Past. And also The Future Starts Here, published 2020. But uh, we're going to talk about this book, William Blake First the World. I knew a little bit about Blake, but this really increased my understanding of him and from a variety of different perspectives of a very unique, interesting individual. So we're going to talk about that. So... John Higgs, are you there? Yeah. Hi, William. Good to talk to you. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people maybe who might not have heard of your background, can you talk a little bit about your interest in William Blake and what led you to read, write this book, William Blake vs. the World? Oh, I mean, it's it's I my books often seem to be a bit of a random hodgepodge uh, to people. I'll write a book about... There's a, a, a band uh, in the UK called the KLF in the early 90s, a rave band, uh, who are probably most notorious for, for burning a million pounds. Um, and I went from that to a history of the 20th century. And I went from that to uh, an account of an old Roman road. And they can appear to be sort of strange little hops where every book is an attempt to get out of the box that the last one uh, has put you in. Um, but when you read them all together, there does seem to be uh, a bit of a, a through line. Um, for instance, you mentioned my Timothy Leary book, which was the, the first thing I wrote back in 2006. Uh, Timothy Leary makes quite an, uh, an appearance in my my look at Blake. Uh, and Blake himself has appeared in many of my other uh, books al- along the line, along the days, you know. And so, so, I mean, this book kind of starts out with this very unique character, William Blake. Can you talk about where he started up and kind of, his background and his entry into kind of the art, really this kind of artistic world of a variety of different types, visual and also poetry. Yeah, sure. I mean, for people who don't know, William Blake was uh, an 18th century, early 19th century uh, poet, uh, writer, illustrator, engraver. Uh, perhaps more more importantly, he was a visionary. Uh, he, he had visions throughout his entire life. When he was around the age of four, he saw uh, God pressing in through the window of his of his house in the upstairs room and screamed uh, and at the age of eight he walked from the centre of London where he lived in, in Soho, he walked out in the countryside to a place called Peckham Rye and sat down under a tree and looked at the street and there was angels on every bough uh, and that, that's him at eight and he had the same level of sort of visionary insight um, until, uh, until old age, through, through his entire life and as a result um, he was you know, he saw the world very differently to his contemporaries uh, and his peers. Uh, and he was ignored, really, for a, a much of his life. He was he was he was dismissed and mocked. And a lot of people just saw him as a, as a madman. Um, but he certainly towards the end of the life, he he just he just believed that the visions that he had were so um, worthy. And so and they made his life so rich. You know, he was rich in every single aspect of, of life that you could imagine, with the exception of financially, you know, um, that uh, he, he it, it sort of inspired him just to keep working and, and working. And he, he produced these 
extraordinary illuminated books that appear to have been written from uh, a position outside of normal time and space um, that, uh, I say, didn't make much of an impact at his time. But 200 years later, there's just been this slow increase in people sort of coming to him and recognizing uh, that what he was trying to tell us was important and was of, of, of great value. Wow. Uh, and, you, and you see hey, in reference... Sorry. Please continue. Sorry. Sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say uh, he became uh, a bit of a, a point of reference in the 1960s um, after Aldous Huxley wrote a book uh, about mescaline uh, called The Doors of Perception, uh, which is one of the first sort of um, intellectual, whether that's the right word, sort of looks at the impact of uh, a psychedelic drug on the mind. And he took the name Doors of Perception from William Blake, because who else had been talking about those things? And then Jim Morrison comes along and calls his band The Doors based on this book and and and, and so on. So he, he became a bit of a counterculture icon in the 1960s. Yeah, so somebody who really wasn't, uh, the public was not aware of him, he, although he did have recognition from maybe some other people in his art community, but he didn't, yeah. he didn't live, uh, he wasn't, Financial. He didn't seem to be interested in commercial success. Would you agree with that? He was very uh, good at ruining any uh, possibility of uh, commercial work. There's, um, we, I was at the British Library uh, a few weeks ago and seeing these letters he wrote, and there's just two letters uh, together that they just it's a it's an absolute three act drama. The whole thing. Uh, this guy commissioned him to produce one specific piece of art. Um, uh, an illustration and he'd been very specific about what he wanted and then Blake had returned with something completely different uh, and sort of explained that actually what the poetic genius wanted was for him to do this work not what you asked for uh, and then we we don't get Blake's response to this uh, so we don't get the response to this letter but then we get Blake's next letter which sort of begins with well I'm sorry if I've made you angry but and then he goes on to explain to this guy why he's wrong about everything and why his perspective on life is just um, uh, is just so flawed. And then at the end, he sort of asks for twelve guineas for the work, and you know, obviously he never got it. Uh, he was he was uh, that, that seemed to encapsulate a lot about William Blake. He was a he was stubborn, but he was driven, but he had utter belief uh, in in his visions and his right. his work and his art. Like a self-confidence, like his whole life, which is very strange without having that real public opprobrium or fame until after he passed yeah. away in, what, 1827. And he's such an interesting figure, and I think you really did an excellent job in really trying to take apart this fascinating, imaginative character and how he saw the world. Can you kind of talk to the audience maybe about how William Blake perceived the outside world, which is very different than the rationalist, materialist view? Absolutely. And at its heart, I think there is quite a simple, subtle difference to how his peers and indeed most of Western, you know, educated society saw the world, which is uh, for Blake, uh, the spiritual world, the immaterial uh, of gods, heaven and hell, demons and angels and things like that, were all internal. They're internal states. As he wrote, man forgot that all deities reside in the human breast. And it's a perspective that is very sort of interesting and useful in more secular times now in the secular 21st century, because few people now genuinely believe that, say, 
hell exists, that it's a place, a physical place that's somewhere, some distance away that you might be sent to at some point. Not a lot of people genuinely believe that. But most people have probably met someone who at some point in their life has been living in hell. And when you start to see hell as an internal state, that sort of raises the possibility of someone living in paradise, like Blake said he was towards the end of his life, certainly. Um, that suddenly becomes possible. Um, uh, and it, it very much um, rescues almost, you know, centuries of, of theology into into uh, something relevant, the idea of yourself having a soul, your sense of a soul. Many uh, materialistically minded sort of scientifically thinking people will just dismiss the idea outright but the the quality um of, of your life your one brief life as we go around this rock however many times is of immense importance and immense value and it is something you do need to to look after um so that because and this this notion that the the immaterial um is internal uh comes specifically from the Greeks, from, from Greek uh, uh, philosophy, uh, from the uh, Pythagoreans originally, but then uh, Plato specifically had this idea of forms where like there was this idealized version of a chair somewhere off in this idealized sort of space. And that all that was, was away from you. And it was, it was, you couldn't reach it. You sort of couldn't get to it. Uh, and this idea that the immaterial was away, it's very different to say Indian thought, uh, Vedic philosophy. It's very different to ancient British mythology, but it was um, it was an aspect of Greek thought that the early Christian church sort of ran with because it, it opened the way to their religion being universal. There was a universal a aspect to it. And so that became embedded in the university system. And this this idea that the the uh, the spiritual is away from you, is a distance, is, ex is external, um, is so deep in the foundation of western thought that we never really think about it and we never really and if you can't see it you know you can't question it so you just accept it uh, uh and that small difference is really the key to seeing how blake understand the world understood the world and why that was so so radically different yeah i mean really unique kind of looks and even you brought up his religion he, I mean, you say in the book he thought of himself as a Christian, but he would not. Absolutely. I think you even say in the book, modern Christians would not recognize his outlook. Can you talk about that? How that outlook formulated in? His yeah, life? well, it, it, it's based on on um, what his definition of, I suppose, Christ consciousness is, is the is the modern term uh, would be, which he, he completely associated with creativity, with the imagination. The imagination was divine uh, uh the imagination just poured through him it was it was it was if it was something new entering the world from elsewhere it was um it was it was utterly powerful there's a conversation that was recorded uh he'd met um a guy called uh crab robinson uh at a party towards the end of his life and this guy was was questioning him and, and asked him about the divinity of jesus and he said, um, oh, yes, uh, G Jesus, he is the only God. And so am I. And so are you. And this guy just couldn't understand what on earth he was trying to say. Because it was the idea was so outside of, uh, you know, 18th century or 19th century uh, uh, thought that it just made no sense. And he wrote it down in his diary. And we still have it. But it's 
when you get to know Blake, you realize that uh, for him, the divinity of Jesus, which he was, um, he was utterly important to him. You know, he, he loved the Bible and he the, the saw it as an entirely inspired, uh, creative and, and wonderful sort of text, um, was uh was an artistic thing was a creative thing he would he talked about uh a man who is not a painter an, an architect an artist or anything like this is not a christian the to 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 create to um uh channel that sort of divine force uh uh through his mind something new for him that was what the heart of christianity was as he sort of defined it so yeah that's very different to you know what your local church may may uh say (laughs) can you talk about i i one of the fascinating things i didn't know but i'm not surprised when i read it in your book was the influence about of swedenborg on Uh, on blake can you touch a little bit on that sure well for people who don't know emmanuel swedenborg was a swedish uh mystic uh 18th century mystic who'd for most of his life been a very respectable uh very wealthy um a sort of proto-engineer, I guess. He was a, he was in charge of Swedish mines, and he wrote lots of books about mineralogy and uh, and, and and things like that. And he was very materially minded uh, up and past his middle age. At which point, he started to have his dreams just started to get richer and richer and richer until they suddenly overwhelmed him and overwhelmed his life. And he found himself, um, you know. As a, as a visionary sort of traveling to heaven and hell and alien worlds and meeting angels and things like that and he wrote all these these um uh books about what happened to him uh heaven and hell being the most most um well known i think um and the, the, you know there's lots of great stories about about swedenberg uh, uh, uh being asked question i mean there's the, there was um the queen of sweden uh her brother had died and so she said to him you know, um, could you ask my brother on the other side about this letter I sent to him? And he came back the next day and he said, yes, I spoke to your brother. And he, and then Swedenborg whispered something into the, the queen's ear and no one knows what it was, but all the courtiers around heard it. And she was going, no, no one, but God knows the secret. There's all these sort of lovely little sort of uh, spiritualist uh, tales associated with Swedenborg. And there was an attempt to build, um, what they called the new church, uh, a religion based on his books um, in Blake's uh, time. And he was very interested in it. And because it was, they were both visionaries and there's a lot of overlap. Um, But as he, as he read deeper and deeper into Swedenberg's work, um, he began to see a lot of things that he he disagreed with. And so he wrote this uh, extraordinary illuminated book called uh, the marriage of heaven and hell. Uh, in contrast to Swedenborg's Heaven and Hell, which is really a little bit of a literary spat. This was him explaining why Swedenborg was wrong. Uh, and it's it's so brilliant that he did because it's one of the clearest um, statements of how Blake saw the world and how and how and what Blake's um, metaphysics and, and theology was. Um, yeah, so he's, he, Swedenborg was definitely a massive influence, but but one that uh, the 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 younger um, pupil, as it were, turned against and and, and surpassed. I think. And he, I mean, it shows also how complex. Like he, you write, there's a theme in your book of this uniting of kind of differences. So oppositions are important in in Blake's mm. worldview. But yeah. can you talk about how it's very 
how complex Blake and unique he was. And he would use these kind of personages, Urizen, Los Orc, to encapsulate concepts for his art. And his, his sure. Art. I mean, uh, he, he very quickly as a writer moved away from uh, i guess the the established mythologies that most writers used at the time which was uh biblical or or greek myths um those sort of figures that were that were used a lot and he basically created his, his his own system i must create a system or be enslaved by another man his world is another man's which is what what he wrote uh and um he came up with all these weird and wonderful sort of mythological characters all of which are aspects of us, they're aspects of our mind. Um, and he called them, there was four in particular that he called the Zoas, uh, the four Zoas is the title of, of one of his un, unfinished works. Uh, and they, they represented the, the rational side of our mind, the creative, the, the physical, the emotional. Uh, and a lot of what his writings were about were putting these figures in different combinations and seeing how they clashed and and seeing the the, the dynamics and the the uh, energies and, and and the grief that they caused from being placed in different sort of positions uh and we can from now we sort of see that as all this sort of proto psychology he's he's sort of trying to to grasp how the mind works and it was it was really quite useful and and profound if you look at when he's writing about revolution you know he has this character called orc who's the who's the spirit of, of revolution um but he he understands this character on a far sort of richer and deeper level than a lot of specifically the romantic writers and the romantic poets at the time who were all sort of you know uh william wordsworth was uh so as at the early days of the French Revolution, and it was oh, bliss it is to be alive and to be young is very heaven. They just saw it as this wonderful thing. And when when the reign of terror came afterwards, and you know blood was washing through the streets of Paris, they they couldn't really uh, it, it didn't fit in their worldview. They couldn't really grasp it. Blake's understanding of a revolution, revolution, of the desire to revolution, the spirit of revolution, was so much more richer that that um, that. Uh, that it just you know it, it fitted the what was happening in Paris far far better and, and gave him a far clearer understanding of, um, of of human imagination. And he, I mean, for somebody who wasn't really well known in his life, he was aware of different ideas, uh, the revolution, Newton. Mm-hmm. So he was he was kind of had a, but he didn't totally agree. Can you talk about kind of his relationship with Newtonian, his Newtonian view? So he kind of was like a crit- critic. Would you agree sure. with that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the the thing with Blake was he wasn't sent to school as a child. He he was just sort of free to sort of play and explore and wander. But as an adult, God, he read everything. He was, you know, he from from the evidence of his works, he was clearly very, very uh, well read and deeply informed on, on you know on certain subjects. Um, and this was the age of enlightenment, really. And the general gist of the age of enlightenment was people say, saying. You know, previously in the medieval world, you know, faith was primary. That was the that was the thing, faith. And the age of enlightenment was saying, well, hang on, maybe maybe it's not faith. Maybe it's reason. Maybe reason's the thing. Maybe that's the the uh, the, the primary focus. Uh, and for Blake, you know, he had no problems with this sort of questioning of faith. But for him, reason was just such a small part 
of what the mind was capable of, that to focus on that uh, was to miss the point. Um, and the, there's this character uh, called Eurizen, which is one of the Zoas I was talking about, our, it's our rational side. Um, he's kind of blind uh, to the fact that he's sort of creating his own reality tunnel, to use a Timothy Leary phrase. Uh, and he sort of believes it to be reality. He believes the model of reality that he's constructing in his mind is the universe uh, and can't see outside of, of this particular um this particular model and the, and you see you see a lot of um blake's artwork there'll be a figure with compasses uh to make you know focusing on a, on a piece of paper rationally making a, a measured sort of circle but around them there'll just be this, this this glorious um formless void or this giant red sun or or, or this sort of strange world and the guy who's so focused on his rationality he's just blind to it he just cannot see it and it's this this it's the importance of this blind spot that our rationale mind has. Uh, we, you know, we often we insist to ourselves that we're rational, even when we're just rationalizing. Uh, it's um, it's something you really um, it really it, it comes into a lot of my books. Again, mentioning Timothy Leary, whose whose concept of reality tunnels uh, was something picked up by Robert Anton Wilson, and he he talks brilliantly about them in all all his books and. Robert Anton Wilson is a, is a figure who's in my KLF book and, and various other things. It's all about trying to see your blind spot, trying to not believe your own BS, not believe your own belief system, as, as, as Wilson would, would put it. This is all it's central to this 18th century you know, romantic poet. It's all, all there uh, in, in the work of Blake. Yeah, no, it's really remarkable. And I think that it was interesting in your, in your book, you talk about the statue of Newton in front of the British Library yeah. holding the compass, but maybe some people may not perceive that that was actually a critique by Blake, not a encomium or some kind of something where he's really admiring Newton as much. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, in, in the same painting, he's painted Newton um, like in this idealized physique of a Greek god with blonde hair and this naked body. Uh, so he's not just mocking Newton. He's not just, you know, he's, he's accepting that Newton was this great, important figure in, in, in world history. It's, it's, you mentioned the contraries earlier, the, the, the importance of opposites. This is, this, is cent- this is absolutely central to Blake, the, uh, um, that without contraries, there is, is, there is no progression. Uh, the idea that, um, you know, he, he would write about innocence, but he'd also write about experience, and he wouldn't claim that one was better or one was important. You know, his book that I mentioned earlier, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, uh, he's having, he wants heaven and he wants hell. And this is very much how our mind constructs um, its sense of the world. As a baby, we've got this completely blank slate of a mind and everything, and there's just this hazy chaotic sort of blur outside and we slowly sort of divide up oh actually there's darkness and there's light okay and there's there's warm and there's cold and there's you know there's mummy and not mummy and we slowly use these these opposites to, to define uh and and um uh and and understand and understand the world and this is what um if you look at the book of genesis uh, this this is what God's doing at the at the very start. He's there's this terrible void, and he divides the you know the water from the land and the 
the light from the dark and over the over seven days uh and it's always it's presented as he's creating the world the idea is here is god absolutely creating the world if you look at carefully what he's doing everything is out there he's just labeling it he's just forming a mental schema to understand it all he's just dividing things up in a in a in a way that he can grasp um so yeah so the 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 the, the use of opposites is uh utterly integral to blake's thinking because you you simply can't have hot without cold or you know one side of the coin without, without the other we sort of need all those and our, our tendency to go well that's a good thing i'll just look at the good thing and ignore the bad thing um uh is 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 is, is not a trap he fell into i guess Right, and he, I mean, his uh, his his poetry was with people. I mean, I think you made an interesting point in your book. You were talking about Bloom, who's his biographer, who's like, mm-hmm. this is at the time like we're still trying to unpack full meanings from what he was writing. Certainly, the later stuff. Yeah, absolutely, the later stuff. I mean, there's uh, his longest work, which he himself considered his his masterpiece, uh, is a thing called um, uh, Jerusalem. Um, the the emanation of the giant Albion, um, and it's it's it feels like it's written from the perspective of outside of being outside time and space and looking in. Um, you know, things happen uh, in the in the plot. It's a very simple plot, but you know, things what happens sort of has already happened and is going to happen and is happening now it's it's very um psychedelic definitely you know and 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 reading it is 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 quite a shock he's very it's like he's trying to um express what his higher states of consciousness his higher visions were um and you know it's baffled many many a a poetry student uh, or a english language major uh in the past couple of centuries but his earlier stuff um the songs of innocence and of experience you know are particularly well known and there's poems like tiger tiger uh, right. uh they're you know very famous and and here in england um there isn't actually an official english national anthem but everyone in england knows that the hymn jerusalem is our national anthem you know it's just it's just been decided by the people it's amazing uh, yeah. yeah yeah which is uh his words from the the, the preface to a poem called milton um, right. but that also that goes back to Albion and your like his concept of the early Isles of Britain and things like that. So it's very po- profound in his understanding, even at that time, supposedly like who walked these shores, who is this person? So even Albion sure. is a symbol of that, right? Sure. And he, he, in many ways, he's like, he's like Adam. He's like, he's the first man, but he's also Jesus in that he, he has the, the light inside him, the, the spiritual light, the, the, the divine imagination, um, which in Blake's view, we lost when we started like, you know, the Druids started measuring the stars and, and erecting the stone circles and building their, their altars uh, and basically projecting a mental system out onto the universe to categorize it and, and rationalize it and to understand it. Uh, this, he saw as the rise of this rational part of our mind. People often refer to it as the left brain. Um, 
uh, that can be a useful way to talk to it, even though we know that both parts of the brain are, are responsible for all sorts of things. But uh, what they mean when they talk about the left brain is, is the sort of um, the rational modeling uh, part of our mind that sort of predicts how people will act and worries about the future and threats about the past uh, and um, takes us away from the moment, the the, the, the experience of existing uh, in the present moment, in the physical sort of sense that uh, of 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 um, I, this is all more right brain sort of sort of stuff. The the uh, the, the joy of you know I don't know surfing or the joy of dancing or the uh, the, the joy of just being you know. And he, I mean, he spent all of his time in London. There was one brief period where he went south. Mm-hmm. Can't remember what city that was, but he was also. I didn't know that he was accused of sedition. Can you talk kind of about his uh, how he took interest from the land and uh, kind of his movements in his life? Yeah, sure. I mean, he um, he moved down uh, in the year eighteen hundred to uh, the village of Felpham, which is next to a place called Bognor on the Sussex coast. Um, and it started. I mean, it, the, his letters from the uh, early years were just just blissful and away from the you know the dirt and fog of central london um he felt his he was more spiritually aware and uh, it was it was it was a beautiful um uh thing but it turned he partly because he he had a, a beef with his patron partly because his wife's health uh, wasn't liking the damp and, and things like that but um there was an incident where there was a soldier in his garden. This this was uh, around the time of the Napoleonic Wars, and England was paranoid that it was going to be invaded by revolutionary France, and so soldiers were sort of uh, in camps all along the, the the south coast of of England and elsewhere. Uh, and uh, he, you know, he, he sort of asked this soldier to leave, and the soldier gave him some some grief. Uh, and uh, Blake, who was a short man, just sort of got the arm of the soldier behind his back and forced him out of his garden and up the road and to the pub, the Fox Inn, uh, where he was billeted in, in full view of everyone. Uh, and um, this soldier, uh, a guy called Schofield, he claimed that uh, Blake, as he'd been doing this, uh, had been damning the king and all the king's um, soldiers and uh, saying if Napoleon... Uh, invades then you know he will win then you are all run and you were um uh this was this was classed as seditious speak at the time it was a very sort of paranoid age because there'd been the american revolution the french revolution and the powers that be in england were scared they were really scared at that sort of that sort of point that it was a revolution you know a republican revolution would, would happen there uh so he was he was tried for sedition which could have led to the death penalty uh, so he had this huge weight over him for a year or so as these things went through the court. Um, fortunately, all the all the the villagers in in Felpham, they all gave evidence. Go, no, we didn't hear anything. No, I don't think he said that at all. No, that's. Uh, I'm sure that the the soldiers just making all that up, and and he was acquitted. But what the soldier uh, quoted him as saying is pretty much the sort of thing he would have said. It did fit very neatly with his thoughts. So it, it, it sort of seems likely that um, the local villagers liked Blake. They didn't like the soldiers. So, you know, they they, they were there for him when they, when they need, when he, he was needed. Yeah. But it was, it was a period, um, it was around this sort of period that he, he went through a, 
a time of 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 bad mental health we'd say now um uh, and there was there was there was paranoia and there was um uh, melancholy or something melancholy yeah there was there had been before there had been depression before he moved to felpham there does seem to be a slightly sort of uh manic then melancholy sort of bipolar sort of switching uh and he would fall out with um uh a lot of his contemporaries over matters that which the which the, the surviving evidence suggests that he was in the wrong and it was all in his head, you know. He was he had he had a bad a bad sort of period, but fortunately, he sort of came through that after writing things like Jerusalem and the last years of his life. He was a much you know uh, happier sort of person. But yeah, you know, trial for sedition can you know yeah, do that. Right, anybody as stresses go. It is fascinating to think that only four copies of Milton and five copies of Jerusalem were printed in his lifetime. And then Jerusalem was put to music, right, sometime in the in the twentieth century, and that's was that what made it more popular? Yeah, uh, just to confuse matters, the Jerusalem that the music is to is not from the his work Jerusalem. Oh, okay, it's, sorry, it's from another. It's from the, that's that's uh, that's just to confuse matters. But in, okay. it was it was in the First World War. Um, okay. it, it was it was put to uh, music by Hubert Parry. Uh, and I, I don't know how familiar American, if, if most of your listeners are American, how, yeah. how they would be to the, the hymn Jerusalem. But it's great. It's 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 a really beautiful, stirring piece of work. Uh, and um, he gave the uh, Hubert Parry. He gave the copyright uh, to the women's suffrage movement. So it's always had this slightly sort of radical, progressive uh, feel to it. But it, at the at the same time, it, that's become uh the unofficial english national anthem it, ta- it talks of the um the dark satanic mills of the industrial revolution and it talks of the green and pleasant land uh, of, of of england um and it's um yes it's an amazing piece of work it's, it's I, think that I've, I think that i've seen it when in canterbury uh people singing it in church you know so i think oh, I'm, I'm not, yeah. or some some so i'm somewhat familiar with that but he died in a pauper's grave and yeah. Uh, I think you you show that like even to this moment you, they had some showing where two hundred and fifty thousand tickets were sold to some showing of so the modern mm. is almost just like huge uh, hugely famous and influential. This this was an exhibition at the Tate um, in London um, uh, just just before it was just before the lockdown uh, and it was uh, astonishing. It was astounding they had room after room after room of so many pieces of, of his work had been collected and collated this was looking at him as um as a painter rather than as a poet or a writer it was it was focused on his visual stuff but still it was just overwhelming the amount of work that um that he did in his in his lifetime it was just extraordinary and to go from you know this this pauper's burial in 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 Bunhill Fields, which is a dissenter's um, burial ground, which was then on the outskirts of London, sort of Bunhill comes from Bone Hill. It was where the unwanted dead were put. Um, to being celebrated to the ex- extent he is uh, in modern British uh, culture is, is just extraordinary. But the st- it's still the case that there's a feeling that people are drawn to Blake, but they find him they don't understand him 
Um, a, a friend of mine said to me recently, she goes, I don't understand uh, Blake, but um, I know he's my boy. I know he's, he's, he's on my team. We're drawn to him, but getting, uh, getting grips uh, with what he's trying to say is, can seem off-putting to a lot of people. They may start to sort of Google a few, few things and then fall into sort of an academic rabbit hole and not really have a, a framework to understand where these arguments sort of fit in. Or it's like it's like the the it's like Blake is this big glorious castle and they can't kind of find a way in there. Um, and I've heard this again and again for various different reasons, which is what this book was really written for. You know, it's it's not. It's not intended for people, for academics who are uh, profoundly knowledgeable about Blake. It's for people who who maybe heard a poem or seen an image and recognise that it's something uh, something connects with them, and they want to know more, but they they don't know how to sort of get into his into his world and understand his his mind view. This is it's like a ramp. It's a ramp into the, the giant castle of Blake. <laughs> that's that's, that's, that's I mean, I felt like. Oh, well, I, I commend you for writing it because I felt like I got a much better understanding of this very imaginative, complex person after finishing the book. So, uh, well, what, what, I, what, I, hope, what I hope you also got, sorry, Rap, sorry, William. What I hope you also got was um, a, a, a different understanding of imagination itself, of your own mind and how your own mind uh, works. Uh, and uh, how um, imagination differs from from person to person, and can be this overwhelming thing that sort of takes takes people over. Um, because that, that's, I think that's important for understanding Blake. But it's it's not just Blake; it's about all of us. It's about all of our minds. I agree, and I, it just kind of felt like you. It was a mind expanding, an understanding of the capacity of a human mind. Somebody is is talented as Blake and had a, definitely had a genius, but also a mystic. So really a fascinating book. Yeah. This, this is the thing with, I mean, people have been having visionary experiences throughout all of history and all, in all of culture. Uh, and the frustrating things about them is their just ineffable nature. These people come back and they just can't explain to other people what they've experienced. Um, but you get Blake who's so talented as a writer and so talented as an artist, um, his work, when you see it, you do go, oh, okay, that, okay, it's real, isn't it? It is real, the experiences that he's talking about. These have definitely happened. His work is just utterly convincing. You know, there's, 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 no, there's no sense that it's wish fulfillment or he's just making it up or something like that. He's seen those things, you know. He's, he's, uh, his mind has been in, uh, that expansive um and um yeah i think that's why he's very important as well and there's so much of that visuals that are interspersed through our culture even in, in the states the great dragon and the woman clothed with the sun is in films yeah. and we see pieces of blake still to this day that's and then the poems tiger and jerusalem is pretty incredible what uh what he achieved yeah. and and many little phrases uh, such as the mind forged manacles that sort of creep out of his poems and into sort of general acceptance and, and general sort of knowledge um yeah he's i mean i would recommend to anyone you know just that if you get into blake your life will be richer and you will have a better quality of life um from having from having blake in there and there really is sort of like no time like the present you know the longer you sort of 
you put it off. You just you'll just be frustrated that you didn't do it earlier because it's it is his work is so rewarding on just a very human level on 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 what it says about human and the way the way it sort of elevates humanity. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's the um, when I was saying earlier about the notion that the gods and everything were internal. Uh, a lot of people might think, well, that devalues them. But reading Blake, that's really not what you get. It, what it does, it just really elevates, you know, the the human potential and what, what humanity can be and can experience. Agreed. Well, excellent book. Highly recommend this book. Where can people find it? It's on Amazon. Is, do you have a website or is, is there a way people can reach out to sure. you? Sure. Uh, my website is johnhiggs.com. Um okay. Uh, but yes, they can they can find it on Amazon. William Blake versus the world. I mean, it's only published in the UK certainly at the moment. Hopefully, we'll find an American publisher one day or sooner, or sooner rather than later. But you can you can certainly get the the UK version from Amazon or your your bookshop of choice. Do you have an audio version? Are you intending to do an audio version? Yes, there is an audio version, but okay, because good. of the way these things work, if you're not in the UK, I don't think it allows you to buy it. Um, well, uh, well, there's a. If you have a VPN, you might be have some success. Intent. That's not a bad idea. <laughs> anyway, great book, great conversation. Thanks so much for uh, joining me. Again, the title of the book is William Blake, Blake versus the World, published May 2021 by author John Higgs. Thanks so much. Thanks, William. All right. Still there. <laughs>